the role of Malcolm X? In, in, Malcolm is a huge figure. Malcolm is a huge figure, especially in New York. Um, like I remember when the the movie came out. You know, yeah. I remember like being a kid and everybody wearing these Malcolm X T-shirts. So yeah. in the early '90s, mid '90s, like uh, you know, Spike Lee in his element. Yeah. So um, and and I do believe that after the Quran, the autobiography of Malcolm X is the book, the single book that has brought the most amount of people to Islam in the United States. Well, Alex Haley, yeah? The, yeah. Yeah. His autobiography I think is must read by any individual. It does two things. For those who ha who are non Muslim, it's it piques their interest in Islam. Yeah. And number two, for those who are Muslim, like myself and others who have read it from uh, from Muslim backgrounds, I mean it's just it just increases your attraction to Islam. Like most Muslim youth, I knew Islam was the truth, but never took time to study my own deen. I mean, I tried many times to open my eyes, but the style kept putting me to sleep. One day I heard a brother say he was going to a class round the way, so I decided I would make my way and see what they had to say. And I must say, it was like nothing that I had ever seen. So many young people all in love with their dean. For once I felt community, so much unity was new to me. The instructors reached out to me and taught me Islam beautifully. They made the gray clear and were experts in their fields, professional and exceptional, like the answer to my prayers. I never wanted the weekend to end, so many gems and new friends and now I recommend that everybody should attend city to city the impact is pretty amazing inspiring an entire nation Al Maghrib Institute not your typical college or school but a chance to change your life now what's your excuse Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh this is your temporary host Umar Suleiman on Islam 21 seat unscripted podcast representing in position for Dr. Salman Butt, uh, who unfortunately couldn't be with us again. He's tried to send a replacement who hasn't done much work all day. So Alhamdulillah, just like to say to everyone, please do follow us, like, comment, share. Uh, we're available on all platforms, whether it's on Apple, Android or YouTube, inshallah. So Alhamdulillah, we've had quite a few speakers who have been attending and speaking at Ilmfest. And now our next speaker as well, mashallah, is also from the stellar lineup here at the ICC in Birmingham. We have with us Sheikh Okay. Assalamu alaikum. Uh, Ammar is fine. Ammar shukri. Ammar shukri. Ammar shukri. How are you doing, bro? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Very well. Alhamdulillah. 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 So, first of all, are you a martial artist? No. Just like. <laughs> this? This is Chinese. I have some family of mine who's Chinese. Really, mashallah. Yeah, yeah. I have a brother-in-law who's Chinese, so he went to China and he got me this. Um, how long ago was that? He went to China. Don't worry, he went to China. Oh right, okay, cool. Longer than two months ago. <laughs> okay. It was he went last summer actually. Yeah. And he's indigenous, indigenously Chinese, um, or he's just visiting. I mean, he's Chinese, but he was born and raised in the states, and he's he just recently took his first trip to China, like two years ago. Okay, well, mashallah. Yeah. So, and yourself, where are you from? Which I'm from Sudan. From Sudan originally, yeah. yeah okay, Sudan. mashallah. Born and brought up in the U.S. I've lived in the U.S. all of my life, except for a period of maybe like four or five years where I lived outside of it. Okay. Six years where I lived outside of it. Where were you? Sudan, living? Kenya. You, oh, you living in Sudan and Kenya. Yeah, yeah. Studying out there as well, or just living? Uh, no, uh, 
Kenya was, I was really young. In Sudan also, I was like maybe fourth grade to seventh grade. I lived in Sudan. And okay. that was by design. My parents, you know, I don't know if you guys have this culture here in Britain, but in the U.S., at least in the Sudanese community, there was, you wanted to send your kids back so that they would absorb the language and have like a, a, a cultural base as well. And so they did that. And I benefited a lot at that time. Mashallah. Did yeah. you get much religious uh, influence? So not so much religious influence, but the language for sure. So um, during that period of time, you really, 8, 9, 10, 11, you're really able to pick up a language, uh, a second language or a first, not a uh, third language even. So for me, it was important for my parents that I, me and my siblings, that we don't become people who aren't able to speak Arabic. Okay. So, and at the same time, to create really lasting, real relationships with our family, because all of our family is in Sudan. And so that's what they did. And we stuck it out for four years. My mom did, mashallah. And mashallah. It was and you're now back where's home now? Back in the U.S. So I grew up in New York. That's home. But I moved to Houston a couple of years back. So that's where I live. And it's slowly becoming home. Houston, Texas. Houston, Texas. Okay. Everything's bigger in Texas. Really? It's true. You need to come out. Inshallah, inshallah. Is that considered the South? South, yeah. It's it's south. it's the South. There's there's nothing south of it except for Mexico. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Gun toting cowboys. Gun toting of... cowboys. Um, all all of that is true. I mean, I went to my first. I remember my first um, barbecue that I went to. It was a Muslim barbecue in Houston. And what or as a barbecue <laughs> for Muslims, for Muslims, yeah, I was like a Muslim, Muslim barbecue. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we're just in line to get the food, and there's a 12 year old kid, and he's with his dad, and he's like, You know, Baba, the, the gun I shot yesterday, that was a shotgun, right? It was a 12, and he was like, Yes, my son, that's his. It was, I was like, This is the weirdest conversation ever because <laughs> even in the Northeast, I mean, you don't have the gun culture that the South has, the South has. Very, very strong and prevalent gun culture. Northeast, you do met what like New York? New York, yeah. Like the you spent time in New York. Yeah, I grew up there. How much time? Yeah, in Queens. Queens. Yeah. Masjid Taqwa. No, Masjid Taqwa is in Brooklyn. Right. But uh, that's close by. But Queens is uh, Queens is the most diverse city in the country. Okay. So every every stop on the subway is a different. It's like a different culture, a different culture in a different country. So I tell people all the time that I grew up in Bangladesh because everybody around me in Jamaica was Bengali. Um, but literally speak, every every South, very little. You know, just came on us in and like you know, yeah, not even. Select the best a man can get. <laughs> no, I don't even know what that is. Yeah, no. Are you Bengali? Really. Nah, bro. Alhamdulillah. Oh. I've, alhamdulillah, even if I was. Uh, <laughs> but I'm just saying, no, I'm not. I'm not. Okay. But our, mashallah, our I crew, see our team here. Our yeah, crew, our the crew. team, man, yeah. representing for Bangladesh. You, know I mean? you better respect them or else they'll turn that's the camera right. off. That's right, that's right, mashallah. No, no, we have a lot of, a very strong Bengali community in the, in, in the UK as well. Yeah, mashallah. I've been to East London. Oh my out. God. Yeah, alhamdulillah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Where did mashallah. you go? Burj Al Hamlet. Uh, I mean, you went to the masjid and the areas around the masjid. Okay. Know? But, uh, you know, Big Mo's, the burger spot and yes, all that yeah, type yeah. of stuff. But alhamdulillah, it's, it's just beautiful. Excellent. It's very vibrant. So kind of growing up in Queens, um, and now I guess it's kind of timely with the with the martyrdom of Malcolm X, Al-Hajj Malcolm X. Yeah. Yeah, rahimullah. 
Um, like did that. that movement have a, an ap- impact on you? Did you identify yourself as what? Maybe uh, I should ask as, as a as a black person growing up. That makes sense. I mean, you have to be. I mean, every. I mean, you are black. There's because in the the reason I'm saying that because in the UK, not necessarily uh, people who are Sudanese or uh, Egyptian would necessarily identify themselves as black in that sense. But uh, even when we speak so to so so black it, in the US, it's more to do with your skin tone. Purely, okay. So everybody's like, I'm black for sure. Yeah. Everybody who's got a dark skin clone is black. Right. Are you African American? Okay. Right. So African American, and and to some degree, maybe this notion of a black. When people say black, they might mean the African American historical experience. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, and so in that case, you don't necessarily share that. But, um, you know, as far as experiences with the police and as far as you know racial discrimination and things like that i mean nobody checks your history before before yeah. making those types of assumptions so but it's but shared was it very was it very palpable the the, the sentiment towards uh, black people in the u.s um so these experiences i mean for example i grew up in new york i was th- i was you know there's a famous program called stop and frisk okay. where you know kids who are from minority backgrounds the police would frisk them Right. And so I remember being 14 years old, just walking, minding my business, going around, um, you know, the neighborhood and cops, you know, stopping you and frisking you and checking your pockets and things like that. And I don't I didn't even like make the connection. You just it was just kind of like part of your day that it was this incredibly aggressive policy. I've had friends of mine who 14 years old, 15 years old, uh, police approaching them and saying, hey, would you like to stand in a in a lineup? Right? right, like a prison lineup, just wow. and they're like, sure, like I got nothing. Maybe they offered them some money. I don't remember, <laughs> but you know, they go and they stand in these prison lineups. Yeah, not connecting and realizing that if someone says yes, you're the one who did it. Like you could be going to jail for an extended, I mean, or just going to jail period, but extended period of time. So all of these like experiences, they're shared. They're they're yeah yeah subhanallah, and the role of Malcolm X. Malcolm is a huge figure, Rahimullah Taala. Malcolm is a huge figure, especially in New York. Um, like I remember when the the movie came out, you know, yeah. I remember like being a kid and everybody wearing these Malcolm X T-shirts. So yeah. in the early '90s, mid '90s, like uh, you know, Spike Lee in his element. Yeah. So um, and and I do believe that after the Quran, the autobiography of Malcolm X is the book the single book that has brought the most amount of people to islam in the united states well, Alex Haley, yeah? The, yeah yeah his autobiography i think is must read by any individual it does two things for those who have who are non-muslim it it piques their interest in islam yeah. and number two for those who are muslim like myself and others who have read it from uh, from muslim backgrounds i mean it's just it just increases your attraction to islam subhanallah yeah he's just a, his insights were phenomenal his insights? Say, in the sense that the way he thought ahead of its time, and now we're looking at a lot of the statements he used to make about how we're positioned and perceived by, I guess, the state apparatus and his role in speaking truth to power. Um, not coming from that culture, I guess we can see it now experiencing it as uh, the Islamophobia that we have in the UK. And especially for us, I guess, who come from an Indian uh, background, so subculture in the sense that it's former colonial powers. So our kind of relationship with power is quite different. 
Yeah. And we look at the black movement and especially what uh, Malik, rahimullah, the way he spoke to, to power and his own experiences as he was learning and the sacrifices he made. He definitely showed that from what I see that he was ahead of his time in terms of his thinking and foresight. He definitely, I don't know if he was so much ahead of his time with regards to his thinking and foresight because he was, this was the black experience. Yeah. It wasn't like, he wasn't saying anything that people didn't know. Right. He was incredibly, uh, he was incredibly articulate. Yep. He was able to articulate the things that they knew and they felt. Right. In a way that, you know, other people couldn't. And at the same time, he was fearless in articulating it, which is incredible. Like, I mean, he was uh, at 39, year, he, he was martyred at 39 years old. Yeah. I mean, that's really young, right? It is. It's and, and, and to know that what you are saying is going to put you in that position and to continuously and to have a, 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 a wife and to have four daughters and yeah. to still be putting yourself out there for the love of your people is really inspiring, of course. And again, he's just symbolic of incredible strength. And people are attracted to strength. That's something that I've learned is that people, even when a person is wrong, yeah, just be strong about it. Yeah, Just be yeah, confident true. about it. I remember Imam Siraj when speaking about the, the, the issue of uh, Malcolm X's martyrdom. And he's speaking when he was at the Audubon Theatre. And his habit was that one of his peers or friends would sit on the stage with him but on that particular occasion, he told him not to. And it was a bit weird because he'd always have him. And uh, Malcolm said to him something like, uh, courage is not the absence of fear, but to continue even though you may be scared. Yeah. You know? And you see that that's the way he lived his life, really. Yeah. I guess. Well, we like, say that courage is just being patient for a moment. It's just being willing to endure. Yeah, something that is disliked or something that is hated, right? Yeah. The person who's courageous on the playground is the person who's just willing to endure getting punched in the stomach, right? They're just willing to endure a certain pain or a certain fear or what yeah. have you. And I mean, Malcolm is, uh, he is, uh, you know, he was called the black sh people. What they said was they, they would say we would see our manhood in him. Okay. Right. It's yeah. it's that when they would see him talk and even till now, I mean, I've I've consumed so much of his, you know, lectures and a period of my life where I was just just reading everything about him because he he was just you would be so inspired and you would be so um, especially when you're you when you kind of feel like those around you are very weak. Right. And you're always yeah. beating down as a community. To see someone who's actually able to to challenge what you see uh, in a in a very powerful way is, is just it but gives it you your manhood back. How many people identify and see him like that? But today, how many people who are in positions of power are like that? When I say power, that's why he's unique. That's the point. That's that's why is, that's is, why it's is unique. Is it the path that we should follow today? So here's an interesting thing: the Prophet sallallahu he says to Bilal ibn Rabah, he says, don't commit shirk with Allah. Even if you are cut into pieces, don't commit shirk with Allah. But Allah Azza he tells us what? That you are given license if you fear for your life, right? 
as long as your heart is as long as your heart is mutmain ala al-iman right fine so then how do you reconcile these two concepts allah is saying as, as long as your heart is 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 content upon faith right that you're allowed to say something that is kufur and Bilal ibn Rawah who is being told by the Prophet وسلم, do not commit shirk with Allah even if you're cut into pieces where is that license here? what the Prophet وسلم, is doing is the Prophet وسلم, is encouraging excellence he's encouraging the highest level it, you have the license Bilal you have the license everybody that if you are under some sort of threat to say whatever it is that will get you outside of that threat Right outside of not a threat in the sense of anything light. We're talking about fear of death in particular. Right. Yeah. But if you're willing to endure, and if you are willing to to give the example of Bilal to be dragged throughout the streets of Mecca and boulders be placed on your chest, and for them to not get any weakness out of you other than you saying ahadun ahad. And that isn't a weakness because that was something that just continued to vex them. And in fact, that statement became a, a, a symbol of strength. And Bilal ibn Rabah himself would become a symbol of strength until today. Bilal ibn Rabah is considered one of those, right? Yep. If you can do that, then that is higher and that is greater. And so there are, there are going to be people who are going to be like Bilal, right? Yep. And there are going to be people who are going to be like Ammar ibn Yasin and, and make a statement that will remove them from that. And both of them are... Allowance has been made for right that 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 uh, that that flexibility exists within the religion and that's important. Excellent, mashallah, mashallah. So you do spoken word is that the right way of yeah? Saying, is it spoken? How do you, what's the difference between spoken word and poetry? I don't know. <laughs> really? Because sometimes I don't know. I I don't know. I'm not like uh I'm I'm not like an expert on these types of things. I write. That's what I do. Excellent. So mashallah. I write pieces and sometimes I perform them and I believe in the important I, I know that we need more artistry in the Muslim community okay and so I support it I encourage it all of that good stuff and now you you're teaching with Al-Maghrib as well yeah I first said it yourself and I'm, I'm sure it's probably the same for a lot of our listeners um when uh, you pre perform some spoken word I actually remember it's around Ramadan Mm. Uh, you did the spoken word of the du'a um, And that was very moving I think literally literal translation Alhamdulillah yeah. Were you doing sp spoken word Or, or writing poetry Before the you were teaching Or, or is It, it was definitely before I was teaching It was definitely before I was teaching But I'm not uh, So what I do is My earliest pieces Or maybe I, maybe I don't know what my earliest pieces Were but My easiest pieces are when I take like Islamic texts and I transform them into some sort yeah. of poetic concoction, right? So this exists a lot in the Arabic tradition, which is the writing of a nazm. So yeah. you take a science and then you yeah. write it into a poem and then people memorize the poem. And then they, yeah, everything, so yeah. many of them. Yeah. And then in every science, there are poems that students memorize and then they, they, they then study it and the sheikh might even teach it, right? And so none of that exists for English. And so what I would do is I would take some of the classes that I attended. Probably the earliest one that I remember is I took Fiqh of Love with Sheikh Yasir Birjas. Okay. And I then almost took the entire course, and I, which was a double weekend seminar on marriage. And I just turned it into a poem. So everything from the etiquettes of engagement to the, the uh, what's it called, the conditions of a marriage contract and... 
the types of people that you can marry, yeah. the maharim and all of that. And then I remember I sent it to the sheikh and I didn't even have a, a relationship with him at the time because it was literally like one of my first classes that I ever took. Sure. And so I had to send it through a brother who sent it to the sheikh. And then the sheikh just responded back and he said, you know what, this is really good. Please uh, continue. Sure. And I was just like... And, and you find that even now in your classes, you're still dropping the poetry. Because I was listening actually to uh, one of your Fatiha pieces. There's a brother, Faisal, I believe, and you're in yeah, the car. Yeah, Faisal Latif, yeah. Yeah, and then you, uh, I just had some of it that you, the translation you're actually doing in a pop. Yeah, we just did it right now, actually. Okay. I just got off the stage. It was me and Imam Wissam Sharif. So, you know, you know, his, you know, his recitation is amazing. Yeah. And so, and he even does, he has something called a running translation. So while he recites, he'll say like "Auzu," and then he has like an explanation of "Auzu Billahi," and then he just keeps going, and it's just amazing. So we just kind of paired them both together real quick right now. But I, I've done this with a lot of different Quran, and it's it's gotten incredible feedback from all of the reciters, even some of the mashayikh who I was like, like I wouldn't so for example in the US we have a sheikh named Sheikh Walid Idris Al-Manisi. Okay. Sheikh Walid Idris Al-Manisi is considered the node of qiraat in the in North America, okay? He is a world-class, world-caliber gets invited to all of these uh, Muslim countries for their Quran competitions and their and their qiraat like uh, uh, councils and all of that. He is a heavyweight scholar scholar, right? right so uh, in Minneapolis and so I just I was at his masjid and I was like, you know what? Let me let me ask him about this idea, Quran in motion, poetic tafsir. He was so excited, so he did a recording right then and there. He did the qiraat version of Surah Al-Ikhlas, and he would say Qulhu Allahu Ahad, and he would do it in all the recitations. And then I would, and then he he even sent me a, a the name of a of a book. There's a Shanqiti, a Mauritanian scholar who had actually done an entire tafsir of the Quran in poetry. So yeah, it's pretty cool. And do you do any poetry in Arabic or just English? Uh, I'm English for now. <laughs> you try? I don't know. My tribe in Sudan is actually famous for writing and uh, writing poetry, but my Arabic poetry isn't that good. Okay, alhamdulillah. So how if I had grown up there, I probably would have gotten the, the Arabic poetry book. But okay, alhamdulillah. Yeah. So um, how was this transition from the poetry to now teaching? Well, come? I wasn't necessarily, I was never like a poet. Right. You know what I mean? Like that was never the thing that defined me. Yeah. If anything, I was always more the student, the uh, teacher, the activist, like more on that side. Yeah. Whereas when it came to poetry, that was just something that I would do at times. Okay. But the poetry, I think for me is just, it's more consumable. It's more popular. And so people will see that for me a lot more, right? So like the Witr Dua will go at hundreds of yeah, uh, you know, or thousands of people actually will watch it. And you made a point earlier about that we need more people kind of in the media or art history, mm -hmm. I guess. Do you feel what we have out there is lame or just not enough? Both lame and not enough. <laughs> Both <laughs> lame and not enough. Lame. Don't get me example. started, man. <laughs> Don't get me started. <sighs> Can't stand. Anyway, so I, I do think it's both of those things. It's lame and it's not enough. We're not really... One of the things that we have to get to is to be culture creators right. as opposed to just always being influenced by people. And consumers, so a lot yeah. of times, yeah, cultural consumers, a lot of times what Muslims do is they'll 
whatever is hot by somebody else okay now we're gonna now we're gonna islamicize it and so that's what it becomes you know you have people on twitter who all they're doing is taking tweets right that are funny tweets and then they just kind of islamicize it and then they repost it and then they get you know what i mean it's just yeah, it's yeah. just it's not original yeah like there's the something nasheeds, to be said man. don't get me started on the nasheeds and man honestly like we blame the u.s a lot for this because like the lame nasheed artist and i i say that with some respect to them it's the easiest out. the easiest thing as a writer for me the easiest thing in the world yeah is that you give me a song yep and i just replace it with halal lyrics yeah easiest thing in the world i can do that right i can do that right now but creating an actual melody yourself or you know making it original that's something that or even remixing it yeah. right but just making it different right that's remix. that's uh, yeah, remix yeah. Yeah yeah. yeah. No, no. Do you guys call that remix? We were, well, when growing up, you'd have these Bollywood remixes. So no. You'd get these Bollywood tunes, I don't and then put some drum and bass on it, and try and make it hip and happening, or put like a hip hop remix. Uh, on. Um, I can't speak to the Bollywood experience, but Alhamdulillah, in really general, did not miss out. yeah, I, I'm pretty confident. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know what's funny in that in Sudan they love Bollywood movies. Really love it. In Sudan, every, like when they were watching movies growing up, and I'm sure until today, what they used to always watch was Bollywood movies. They loved it. And I would be like, what about American movies? Like, why? And they're like, oh, American movies, you guys are always fighting in the dark. They're like, they're not, they're like it's so, it's like, it's always explosions and stuff, but they're like, they love Bollywood. Uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't say Alhamdulillah, but you know, I guess... I can't even say lesser of the two evils anymore, man. Because like from what I hear, Bollywood's just as bad. As is it Hollywood? Yeah, there's a Nollywood. So we need Nigerian. to we need to create Mollywood. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. That even that doesn't even sound right, Mollywood. Yeah, that's right, man. That's Mollywood right. Stuff. So we need more artists coming through with original content. Um, yeah, I mean, I just think that you have to be you have like for example, the example that I always give people is music. Yeah. People bang their head over the walls against the wall for a thousand years talking about his music halal or halal yeah music 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 right you got people spending their entire lives from the time that they're 15 to the time that they're 45 debating this issue of music mm -hmm. and they've got this artistry in them and it doesn't come out because is music halal is music haram is it duff can i do anything with the duff that's lame right yeah. that entire time and then you have in the u.s the most undoubtedly the most, the community with the most cultural capital and the most creative community is the African-American community. Yeah. Without a doubt. Yeah. And you find them always creating new genres of art all the time. So where Muslims are sitting there like, oh, I need to music, I need to do music, I need to do music. African-American, like, they're like, okay, let's give you rock and roll. Okay, you y'all are going to take over rock and roll here we'll we'll do jazz yeah. oh you guys are going to take over jazz here we're going to create something called hip-hop right and then they make it hot every single time and then other other right now hip-hop like every culture in the world is trying to do hip-hop ask them to take bhangra huh ask them to take bhangra 
Can they do anything like you know what you know, I, well, I don't that. know anything about Bangra. I just know <laughs> that in my you know university days, like they used to do Bangra blowouts, like some of the DC oh. kids they used to do. It, but I don't know what. Oh, oh, those guys, yeah, no, no, Amar, the good student, the other guys, yeah, they used to do it. Oh, I would definitely not <laughs> do Bangra. <laughs> you serious? Yeah. And uh, so, what's it called? Um, so the culture capital you're talking about, how they kind of. They're always creating. So, for example, just this notion, right, of music, this is the only way that we can express art. You have the, this underground scene, mm-hmm. which is very competitive, very popular, of battle rap. Right, okay. No music. Basically cussing each other or dissing you. Okay, which is great, right? Because now, but they've, but they've created something without that major impediment, right? And they're packing stadiums. Yeah. Just battle rap. Just two guys getting together, 10 guys getting together, and they're cussing each other out. So it's still haram. But now it's just haram <laughs> for a different reason, right? Yeah, yeah. But I was mentioning this in my class a couple of weeks ago, and one brother says to me, this is in Orlando. He says, uh, but have you ever heard of compliment battles? And I said, what's that? And it is a thing that you go online, you go on YouTube, and you find compliment battles where people aren't cussing each other out. But they are creating, right? Yeah. They're sitting there and they're complimenting each other. Maybe this will be good for like, Islamic debates in a nice way. What do you reckon? I'm just—I don't know about the debates, <laughs> but I'm just—I'm just looking You've at the—I'm just looking at creativity. Like, yeah, yeah, just yeah. look at. Yeah. Why are we hung, hanging ourselves over just one one manifestation of art? Right. You know, the Muslims during the, <clears throat> you know, when they inherited from you know the earth from the Greeks and the the Persians yeah, yeah, yeah. and all of that. I mean, those guys were sculptors, but the Muslims didn't say, "Well, oh, I mean, we need to sculpt. Yeah. We need to make images. Images are haram. <coughs> how can I? How can I be an artist?" Of course. They said, "No, okay. So creating idols, creating statues, we can't do that. Fine, no problem. We're gonna we're gonna show you guys this calligraphy thing, and the beautiful. Geometry. Oh, we're gonna show you geometry. We're gonna show you architecture." We're going to, there's a million different ways that we can manifest art and we're going to show you some and we're going to master them. And then you go to, you look at, and now cuisine is an art, right? And now, and even acapella, like you go on YouTube and acapella is like this incredible genre. Like you have these artists and they're not even Muslim. You would think Muslims would be like the lead in something like this, but they're not even Muslim and they've got millions of subscribers and they're touring and they're doing all of these things, just pure acapella. I was watching a. Um, sorry, you got me. Uh, no, no, this is. You. I was watching. Uh, one time, I was watching a, 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 a shadow theater. Oh, shadow. Shadow theater. What's that? So it was behind a, a screen. Okay. And it was silhouettes of people, and they were performing a story. Right. Just silhouettes of people behind a, a screen, yeah. and I'm looking at myself. I'm like, man, this is like the most halal like thing I've ever watched. Right there's, and again this is this is an yeah. art form. Yep. Right, and so it's when we say cultural creators, it's like what art forms are you creating, and what art forms are you pushing forward that are in line with your values? But for that, you need to have confidence. Is this a challenge of Muslims in the West, or do you think it's a global challenge? Well, I think that Muslims in the West need to lead it because the West is what leads. Okay. Right. That's interesting. And so. It's like the story of you know the, uh, every prophet is sent to their people, and their people are always the most yeah. noble, right? Musa isn't just Musa is in the house of Fir'aun because of the ripple effect. Yep. Ibrahim is from the the house of the idol maker, 
Muhammad is from Quraysh, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And so the Muslim who's in in <coughs> London yeah. is not like the Muslim who's in, you know, a city that's less influential. The Muslim who's in the United States is not like a Muslim in, in a, a country that isn't as influential. Like you are in a position where your actions have a greater ripple effect for good or bad. Okay, subhanAllah. So this is so some of the Muslims, I guess the Muslim majority countries when you uh, you've traveled, I assume to East, some the Malaysias of this world, perhaps even Indonesia, where they seem to have less of the baggage and the, you'll find a lot of the Nasheed artists and even the a cappella and stuff. I remember seeing them in the early days. Maybe they've quietened down a bit. Do you feel that the Muslims in the West can't really kind of pick that up or it's just not their thing? Meaning pick up the, the art form? Yeah. No, I, th- I I don't know what the, the Malaysian... I've never listened scene. to the Malaysian scene, to be honest. But um, uh, with regards to our particular... Um, you know, I think it, acapella in general, it should be something that Muslims pick up, for yeah. sure. Okay, okay, alhamdulillah. So it's good, we can push the envelope on it. Have you had any challenges to what you've produced, personally? Never. Because you haven't gone out and done anything dangerous? Yeah, I'm, I, 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 to be honest, I'm, I'm pretty conservative when it comes to these things. I haven't, uh, <clears throat> you know, you might get a comment here or there about, you know, is this... Uh, music or something like that but for most of my part it's just some harmonizing in the background okay. and that's it alhamdulillah yeah. so are you do you teach kind of full time or have you got a day job do i teach full time uh so f- i mean no in the sense that full time is most of my teaching is done on the weekends so okay. it's not uh it's not anything that i do for 40 hours a week is it 40 hours a week so it's and a Maghrib seminar is three hours. Uh, it's around 17 hours. So no, yeah. It's around 17 hours every weekend. But I don't teach every weekend. So Okay. Yeah. Uh, do, you, do you work during the week or are you studying still yourself? So um, I do study. I am working with a Maghrib both on faith essentials as well as, inshallah, what I'll be doing this year is uh, being in creative control of content. So everything that you see, inshallah ta'ala, as far as messaging from the Institute this year, as well as advertisements, branding, all of that, inshallah ta'ala, will have some of my fingerprints on it this year. Inshallah. Excellent, mashallah, mashallah. Looking forward to it. Excellent. And uh, you're also teaching a course as well, I believe. It's uh, the Venom so and the Serum. Huh? I just finished uh, <clears throat> in Birmingham, actually. Yeah. I taught my last class earlier this year. Uh, which was His Majesty, Unlocking the Names of Allah. And so that was a course on the names of Allah that I taught in almost, not almost, every Al-Maghrib city that we have in the world, alhamdulillah. alhamdulillah. So that was 35 cities, and it took over two and a half years to teach it. And the names of Allah, I would teach it tomorrow. Like, it's one of the most beautiful, it's not yeah. the, one of the, it is the most beautiful topic. Because there's nothing greater than talking about Allah Azawajal. So we wrapped that up, and now I went to the complete opposite. So the names of Allah is hope-inducing. Like, yes. you, you will never lose hope learning about the names of Allah. Do you have a personal favor, actually, on that? And so, that's a difficult question, <clears throat> but is the one that There you are a lot that I love, and, and probably most of the time when I get asked that, it, Ash-Shakur is one of them, for sure. Shakur. Because it speaks to Allah Azza wa Jal. Shukur means to increase. 
الزيادة. And so when you do something for Allah, He increases what He gives to you. He will always give you more, much more than what you offer Him. Amazing. Amazing. And so it inspires a person to never belittle any goodness that you can do. You smile in the face of your brother, your brother ignores you. You say, Salaamu Alaikum in London, everybody ignores you, right? <laughs> and so in that case, but you're not doing it for them. Yeah. Allah Azza wa knows and He is a shakur. He is the one who will increase you and He's the one who will who will reward you with much more than what you've offered. And so that's a beautiful and inspiring name. Um, also, I love Al-Fattah. Okay. The one who unlocks doors. Al-Wahhab, of course, the gift giver. Like Allah, is, that's his name, like the gift giver. Like how does a person, how does a person not love Allah when these are his names, right? Yeah. Like how does a person not be pleased with Allah as their Lord if these are the names and attributes of the Lord that we worship? How does a person not feel privileged beyond all of that? Beyond being pleased, just being feeling privileged, feeling favored. That when everybody else is living this life, worshiping whatever they're worshiping, that I have been given the privilege of guidance to worship Allah of such beautiful attributes. So, yeah, His Majesty is a beautiful course. And then we were switching gears to a study of sin. It's called the venom and the serum. And the venom and the serum is all about, okay, yes, you should love Allah and have hope in Allah and all of that, but He also created a hellfire for a reason. And these sins have effects. And you can be very, very harmed. You can be harmed very much by okay. these sins that you do if you don't pay attention. And is it, do you go into specific sins or you talk about sins in general? We talk about specific sins. And, okay. We talk about, so the, the, the course was based initially, although I'm, I'm changing it a lot now because... Once you start teaching the course, then you really kind of see what yes. works and what doesn't. Yeah. And so initially it was based completely on Ibn al-Qayyim's book, Adda'ud Dawa', which means the illness and the cure. So venom and the serum, we're calling it the illness and the cure. So, and, and his book that he wrote was as a response to a question of a person who said that he was basically immersed in a sin that he can't get out of. Right, okay. And the more I try to get out of it, the more I get sucked in and I know it's going to destroy my deen and my akhirah. And the scholars commented, they said that you can see from the text of Ibn al-Qayyim and his response that he understood this question to be about love or lust. And yeah. some even said that it was a homosexual love. You okay. can see that from Ibn al-Qayyim's response as well. And so for my purposes, however, I'm, 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 I'm kind of shifting away from Ibn al-Qayyim's conclusions with regards to love and lust. For, for no other reason than we already have, you know, seminars that tackle these issues like Love right. Notes and Fiqh of Love and all yep. of these courses. And so, so that we're not repeating material, yeah. I'm going to be focusing completely on just the topic of sin. And Ibn al-Qayyim spends a lot of time talking about sins. And he does talk about differentiating between major and minor sins. How do you know what a major sin is? How do you recognize what a minor right. sin is? As well as uh, what the major sins are, the most major of major. So shirk the killing of a soul, and zina. He talks about these three in, in a lot of detail, so we, we do that in the class as well. Okay, is there an age, uh, a minimum age for this seminar? No, there's no minimum age, uh, but when we, there is a, there's one session right now where we talk about dina, zina with, um, you know, a certain level of, um, 
frankness. Yep. And so I make sure that parents are aware of it and that if they're not comfortable with their kids being there, then they're... Do you, in the course, discuss the steps that lead to Zina? And I guess I'm talking from the age that we live in now, the access to sin has become so much easier. Um, do you perhaps look at some of the methods that we can use to protect ourselves from falling into it? Yeah, there's a lot of discussion in the class, you know, because even the communities vary with regards to what they can do. Yeah. Right. So it becomes a lot of it becomes just education in the first place. I think one of the things that we have to do is we have to be courageous and intelligent and articulate enough to actually unmask Zina. Meaning, how do you make it, you know, Ibn al-Qayyim, he says something powerful about it. And he says that as Zina destroys Nidham al-Alam, it destroys the institutions of the world. It destroys wow. the systems of the world. A deep statement. And incredibly perceptive, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. It's not like he's living in a, in a society where it's prevalent or anything like that. But he recognizes that it destroys all of the institutions. Of course, the most obvious one being family. Right, but it 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 affects everything. It it'll affect your education, and it'll it'll affect your your. It will affect every aspect of society when it is something that is allowed and promoted, and that's one of the things that we do. So it's it's about okay, how do you forget proving to a Muslim? How would you prove to a non-Muslim that this is not a good idea for them? Yeah. Yeah. Everything from, you know, uh, you know, you guys in the UK, uh, you recently appointed a minister of loneliness, <laughs> right? Right. So, what? How are people getting more lonely? Like, how does that work? Why is that the case? Why are people so lonely? Well, you know, it's interesting that whenever you make things easier on people, people will always take that which is easier. Right. Every time you create an update, you bring out a new phone, you bring out a new technology or anything that just makes people's life easier. People before they could not imagine that malls would go out of business. There's so much that I do at the mall. Yeah. But let's create something called Amazon and let's see if they really want to go to the mall or if they would just prefer to click uh, something and have it show up at their house. And people don't go to malls anymore. Right. Something that was such a important Staple part of the life. Absolutely. America is all gas stations and malls. Yeah. Like and 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 now people don't even go to the mall anymore, right? And so when you make things easier for people, people will choose what is easier. But we don't really realize in the process of taking that which is easier, right? We don't have that foresight. We don't understand the consequences what we're actually giving up and what we're losing out on. And so in the abs in in the presence of all the, you know, hookup culture and casual relationships, yeah. what do we live what are we losing in the long run of our lives when 20 years later, that 20-year-old is now 40 years old. He doesn't have a family, right? He has nothing for him to protect. He yeah. has nothing to provide for. He has no purpose, right? Yeah. And so the, the, the harm of zina and the victims of zina isn't just women, but it's also men, right? And, yeah. and there's a lot of research and discussion about, you know, uh, the demise of boys, yes. right? Like why guys are kind of just, where are they? Why are they opting out? Well, what what's aspirational for them? Yeah, right. and and it's being acting like young boys for much longer in life. But it's because they can afford to. Yeah, yeah. Right, and so now if all they have to do is swipe right, 
right? So I was reading one uh, psychologist who was basically mentioning that really, you know, if you're a young man, right, there's like these two really primal like uh, motivations for you. So yeah. one they mentioned was was violence, right? Um, and so not violence necessarily in a negative way, yeah. but just violence in the sense of accomplishment, right? Fighting and, and challenging yourself and, and, and yeah, accomplishment yeah. and, <clears throat> you know, uh, they're attracted to that type of stuff. They're attracted to the notion of being a soldier. They're attracted to superheroes. They're attracted yeah. to these types of accomplishments. And then the second one is sexual. These are your two. And as for the, the, the one for violence and accomplishment, that right now is being satisfied by video games. And also sports, as in watching sports. Do you, do you find that, like, seeing boxing, competing? So vicariously kind of through that, yeah. yeah. And yeah. then number two, the sex is, is being uh, satisfied through high-quality pornography, right? So and fun. so, and this is interesting, people are actually dating less than before. So in Japan, they're talking about, you know, they're, they're asking the question of why their, their, their teenagers aren't dating at all. Right. And in the United States, uh, I think last year, people were actually dating less. Like it, it actually started. A, 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 well, as a, in, in terms of the amount of time or just both. Generally? Wow. The amount of time, of course, the amount of time is a given because women are being taken on dates less. Okay. Because, again, <clears throat> women are the gatekeepers of this exchange. Right. They're the ones who decide when, where, how, all yep. of that. And so when 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 things have become, you know, uh, so there's a, a sociologist who uh, named Mark Regnerus who who writes on this topic a lot, and he he compares when women are in surplus versus men, or when men are in surplus versus women. Okay. And in his research, he found that in universities where the women are more than the men. So now the women are, are the men are the ones who are in short supply. So it's it becomes like a <clears throat> a market favorable to men. Yeah. And so uh, long term relationships become less frequent, and relationships in general become more frequent because men are more inclined for casual relationships. And then in the universities where women were less, they were obviously the ones who were in demand, and so it was more in their favor, and those long term relationships uh, existed. Right. And so. But what with technology, what technology has done is technology has kind of <coughs> opened up the marketplace. Yeah. And this isn't a Muslim problem, of course, right? This, this sort of stuff doesn't impact Muslims. Of Muslim. course, of course it does. It's a Muslim issue as well? Of huh? course, yeah. And the, the Muslim families, they recognize this as this is an issue? I mean, it's a disaster for Muslims. What are you talking about? Because Muslims are the ones who are not only... They're the ones who are saying, I'm going to put you in this super, this environment where the haram is so easy and accessible. Yeah. Muslims are attractive too, by the way. Muslims go to university oh, too. Okay. Muslims are, uh, yeah. Eyesight's working in it. MashaAllah, tabarakallah. <laughs> and, and, and Muslims have urges as well, right? And so... Do they uh, recognize that there's this problem within them? As in do... The parents fear for their children, or is th is that there yet? That type of worry, or is there denial? Because I, I mean, yeah. uh, parents differ. You know what I mean. But uh, I would think uh, I would hope that a, a wise parent 
um, does have I, these concerns I, for I their had children. One of the huge challenges of, of Muslims in the US is around um, atheism. And is, is, is that something you confirm or, or people kind of not believing in Allah anymore? I mean, it, it does exist uh, for sure. And, you know, Sheikh Walid actually earlier was talking about some statistics that he had saw of, I don't know how, how um, but some research groups are saying that one out of every four Muslims will leave Islam or what have you. But it's, it's, it's challenging for a lot of people. Do you find that's your experience on the ground as well? Do you do any pastoral work? That type of thing Yeah but as far as Leaving Islam I Like for example Right now I see a lot of um, You know a lot of Unfortunately sisters Taking off hijab Right That's okay. I don't know if you guys Have that as much In the UK But yeah. we, we have that now In the US a lot As far as Leaving Islam I, is I can't say That it's one out of Every four though Okay But is that a decision They've come to That they no longer Think they need to wear hijab Or because of the pressures it's usually yeah. pressures and, and, and desires and, you know, uh, being uncomfortable. You know, there's a lot of things that go go with it. Wow, subhanAllah. And and do you do any kind of pastoral Because work? a lot of yeah. the U.S. is not like here. Yeah. Like, it's not like London and Birmingham where you walk around and every other person is in hijab. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, uh, I, like New York... New York, yes. New York's okay. Yeah, okay. New York's okay. But a lot of uh, a lot of the U.S. is, you know, just it's very, uh, it's still it's still not normal, right? It's still not, and and so a lot of times if you're talking about a, a sister, you know, wanting to wear the hijab even, but she's alone and she's, you know, she's working and she's, it it, it might be very challenging. And what guidance has been given to them in these situations? Or is it always has to be independent or individual? Yeah, these are individual discussions that you have. Really, subhanAllah. Yeah. Okay, okay, alhamdulillah. So, mashallah, you, you mentioned some statistics around the work you're doing. Do you read a lot around the, the subjects outside of the Islamic text in, in terms of the topics that you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, of course. I think you have to. Yeah. Because we're not, I mean, you have to be aware of the... I mean, the discussions that society is having, having with regards to any particular topic that you're presenting on. Because my formula is if you are preparing a topic to make sense and to address the concerns that non-Muslims have, and even in the language that non-Muslims have, then you will also include in that address Muslims who literally don't have much of an Islamic education and background right you're widening your scope of your address okay. and i think that's important to do any, any good books you recommend on this topic on which topic on uh, so i guess even from the the venom and the serum so the the book that i recommended to you uh, right now on the topic of zina is called cheap sex by mark ragnaris okay and he talks uh and in general his books are quite good with regards to that there's another book um uh, I'm forgetting her name, but uh, it's it's called Why Men Are Opting Out of Marriage, uh, or it's called Men on Strike, actually. Okay. So Men on Strike, she's also a PhD psychologist talking about why men are on strike, why they're not opting into marriage. Um, yeah. In your course, do you look into the psychology of uh, sinning? Not yet. That might be something that I'll be adding. But right now, as of now, we're not looking into the psychology of people who sin 
Because, I mean, people are going through huge, I think, bouts of depression and stress. Um, and often you'll find that they're perhaps living their life in a way that's not the best way they can live their life. And it seems to add to it. And they can't seem to get out of it. ذكري فإن لهم عيشة ضنكا right that's that constriction yeah whoever turns away from the remembrance of Allah a lot of uh, I I realized after I started teaching it that there's even if I wasn't intending an element of psychology that the questions I was getting were all questions that would need literally a psychologist to answer yeah right and so I would uh, you know We have a wonderful uh, local psychologist in Houston, Texas, Sister Sarah Sultan. I would, you know, uh, consult with her with regards to some of the answers before presenting them to the, some of the students and things like that. Just because people would, people would ask a lot about anxiety and depression, yeah, and numbness even in salah and numbness with regards to life and you know, yeah, uh, whether these are, uh, yeah, let me just, yeah. Alhamdulillah. Okay, yeah. good, good, good. So you mentioned earlier that you're kind of getting involved a bit more in the marketing side for Al Maghrib. The one thing I have to say. So I've always been a marketing. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's for for Al Maghrib or generally, you've been into marketing? No, generally. That was my background in university as well. Okay, okay, mashallah. Because I was going to say Al Maghrib, uh, the various that kind of DAO organizations, Al Maghrib's always been known for it's quite slick in terms of its uh, marketing machine, for one of mm-hmm. a better term. And um, it's something. You've dropped into quite easily, do you think? Yeah, very easily. It was, I mean, it's just something that I enjoy. Something, but marketing has now moved beyond like my particular interest in that. A lot of it is Facebook uh, advertising and like all all yeah. this number crunching and analytics and stuff like that. So that that isn't mine. Um, but like just writing, storytelling. Yeah, that to me is interesting. And uh, do you think there's a lack of storytelling now? I tell people we're an ummah filled with heroes without storytellers. Subhanallah. Okay, that's what we are. Yeah. So you take something. I mean, ha, you ask people who William Wallace is. Who's William Wallace? Oh, from Braveheart, yeah. From Braveheart, right? From Scotland. That's where Scotland. he's from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But where do you know him from? You know him from Braveheart, right? You'll never take our freedom. Okay, thank you. <laughs> But look at Malcolm X. How many people know Malcolm X because Spike Lee said, I'm going to do a movie about this person? All right. Right? Yeah, yeah. Spike Lee is a storyteller. He's a film director. Yes. Um, Artugal, right? Everybody, everybody. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, a figure that the Muslim no world would one no one would have ever known, and still probably eighty percent of the people mispronounce his name. <laughs> I probably do. I've never, you know what I mean? It's like you know, I watched the Umar series, yes, the NBC yeah, yeah. Umar series, and I used to tell people to watch it. And I mean, people who would never watch a book or or, or listen to a lecture about Umar ibn Khattab. I had one brother from my masjid. You know, maybe five days later after I told him to watch it and stuff like that, he came up to me. He said, he said, I, I finished the whole series. At work, and I was like, it's, 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 "I just told you about this like on Monday." He was like, "I just he was like I watched the whole thing. It was amazing, you know." And I was like, "So what did you think?" He was like, "Khalid was a G." I was like, "Great!" <laughs> like he was inspired, you know. He connected with the Sahaba, like so. I, and the question is, how many? Yeah. Do we have? That's right. Right. Yeah. I don't. That's... I don't need Wakanda. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like yes. I don't need I don't need the Avengers. If I had 
amazing storytellers of my own history, like the real. Yeah, subhanAllah. How do we tell those stories now? Is it, are you saying through movies? Is that the best angle? Why not? Through everything. I mean, you don't have to do the best. Do what you're best at. Yeah, but the problem is, if unless we do a good job, you get which we've had, there's these poor quality stories. And I'll tell you what it is. It's like, I don't know, I don't think you guys ever had Kibla Cola in, in, in the US. No. Mecca Cola. Did you have any of these knockoff colas? No. So we had them over here, right? So Not that I know of. Coke least. or Pepsi Cola. Then you had some Zamzam Zam Cola. Yeah, yeah, okay. I mean, they're still half decent, right? <laughs> okay, my bad, my no, bad. No, 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 What I'm my saying is bad. this, that you'd have these these colas that, that kind of come in. They're not as good as the other main products. So people buy them for a little bit, but they don't get satisfied from them. So they go back to the, the consuming the normal product. Now, the storytelling we're talking about, unless it's well-made. So NBC was, I guess, an exception. Marshall. It was the largest budget for an Arab drama ever. There you go. I understand. I understand what you're saying. And you know what? Maybe there are, you know, and there are. There are a lot of like series on Imam Ahmed and Shafi and Salah Din and like, yeah. you know, like there these exist, but they're not necessarily like the Umar series was. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, but they're still important. They're yeah. still important. And and they'll and guess what? Like, like I do poetry. My videos aren't, you know, a two million dollar projection budget. But they still benefit people. Yes. Right? And so in 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 seeking perfection, don't cut yourself off of the good that you can do. Because if you're going to chase that, then yes, you're never going to do anything. And in terms of people who are looking, are going to take that message. Buddha Muhammad right now, I mean, he's he's got these movies. He's got five of them. MashaAllah. Yes. And uh, he's touring. Every, yeah, he's touring everyone. It's not a Hollywood budget. Uh. But... Again, it's 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 he's able to tell a compelling story, and he knows what he's doing, and he's able to direct it to uh, to a, a level where uh, he's a, he's able to create a great film. And they're gonna be original. I don't think we can just do <coughs> knockoffs and copies, as we mentioned earlier. Just like you know, I think we have to be original in what we do, um, and try and do it to good quality. Anyway, this is a son in what we do in anything that we do, um, and the community should come out and support the people who are doing it. But the problem is, it's the danger of falling. People are still unsure. So it's a new area for us as Muslims. So if I, for example, now, you said to people, let's fundraise. We're going to make a film on the life of a particular companion. Everyone will understand why. But they said, well, we're going to have a really good you know, uh, band that's going to make sure that the score, the musical score is going to be written. Can we do that? Well, you don't have to do that. I mean, ask Muna. I doubt he's got bands and original scores in his movies. No, he's doing uh, the a cappella, I believe, not, so not there, no oh, instruments. It's about being creative. But you how know, many people is that going to reach? A lot. Inshallah. Inshallah. A lot. You yeah. know, again, that's that. I can't do it without. No, no, uh, not doing it. Doctor Ali Shahata. Yeah. Made a movie about autism. Right. This was a film competition on autism, and he made it. And he told me, he said, he made it, it was like by Yahoo, right? This was a number of years ago, and Yahoo launched that film competition. And he created that, it was a short film, and he made it, and he, he placed. I don't remember if it was second or third or something like that, but he placed very high. And I asked him, and I said, how did you do that without music? I just assumed that he did it without music. He said, you know what I realized? He said, the soundtrack to our lives 
is not actually music. It's you walking down the street and the car horns yeah. honking. It's the sound of you walking on the pavement. It's the sound of the wind walking by you. And so he was able to create a short film that kind of background that created that type of accompaniment as the emotion of the story. And I thought that was sure, I mean yeah. It's it's Awful. it's that type of out of the box thinking yeah. that I think will push us forward with regards to that particular genre. But there's so much other than that that could be done, and that's not the only way that you can tell a story. Yeah, yeah. right. Good. You can Good. you can create uh, you can create podcasts, stories of the Sahaba, right? Yeah. No, you can create podcasts, stories of the Sahaba, and you can, you know, uh, create uh, sound accompaniments and sounds of battle, and you can do all of these types of things. Yeah, excellent, excellent. Alhamdulillah. Um, I guess look, we're just really approaching the end of the podcast and as a the spoken word expert mm. can i kindly ask for you to give us a short piece what's your favorite or something that really uh you connected with or you know you think we can benefit from on the podcast from your spoken word pieces from my spoken word yeah oh i'm trying to think now this wasn't planned I know. <laughs> I mean, I've got a lot of pieces. They're not, um, I'm trying to think of. Since we're in the UK, I think I should do, do you guys like Rudyard Kipling over here? We do. One of his, fa my favorite pieces is his. He was, he was quite racist, but there's he was a, quite racist. a man, my boy. If. If. That was uh, beautiful. I love that one. Yeah. I, I think it's like a great piece on Makarim al-Akhlaq. It should be like, it should have like a sharh done yeah. with it. If you can, uh, no, I'm not remembering it. If you can, when all the world, when you can keep your head, if you can keep your head when all the world is blaming theirs and lose, and when all the world is losing theirs and blaming it on you. Yeah. If you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowance for their doubting too. If you can be hated on, if you can, okay, let me do one of mine. Yeah, exactly. If the, if you walk with the kings. No, oh, that's way later. But yeah. if you can, uh, if you can wait and not be tired of waiting or being lied about, don't deal with lies. And being hated on, not give way to hating, nor speak too good, nor talk too wise. If you can dream and not make dreams your master. If you can think and not make thoughts your aim. If you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat both imposters just the same. Like, oh, man, that line? Man, sometimes I wish that I wrote these pieces. Yeah. If you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat both imposters just the same. If you can walk with kings and not lose your virtue. No, if you can walk with people and not lose your virtue and walk with kings nor lose the common touch. If neither friends if neither foes nor loving friends can hurt you if all men count with you but none too much yeah okay so i'll do one of mine it goes this poem is called who is muhammad wow. so this one uh, the hashtag who is muhammad was trending on twitter and it spoke to a feeling that i had very i remember very clearly when i was in high school and that was, you know, just walking around New York and I would see, you know, you'd go to any restaurant and stuff and you'd see quotations from Confucius or from Buddha or from, yeah, yeah. you know, and I was just like, 
Like, I get it. But how come I never see a quote from Rasulullah anywhere ever? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, are you telling me that the greatest man, and even if you don't believe he's the greatest man, but he is one of the greatest men in human history, for sure. You're telling me that he doesn't have a single quotation that benefits anybody anywhere? Like, John Maxwell, you're telling me that you can write like 30 books on leadership and you never found a single incident of leadership from the life of Muhammad sallam that deserves to be in your book? Like, are you guys purposely overlooking him or is there simply just, are, are you completely ignorant of him? Like, and, and how? How can you be ignorant of someone who is so important? So this goes, uh, when a man has a billion and a half followers, his status in history isn't debated. So why is the greatest man then when great men are rated the one that you don't know? His name is the most popular in the world. His fame encompasses the globe. His message was to worship God alone. His method was mercy to friend and foe. Why is it then that you don't know? He was the orphan prophet and shepherd sent to revive hearts lifeless as deserts, ties of kinship that were severed. His forbearance could not be measured and he is so loved. You would love him too. If you only knew. He was the father whose face lit up when his daughter entered the room, would stand and seat her where he was seated. He was the husband who sent an army ahead so he could foot race his wife and laugh charmingly when defeated. He was the prophet who told us that paradise lies at the feet of our mother and to love for ourselves what we would love for each other. His companions were Persian, Roman, Jewish, Arab, black. He taught us we're all the same because we all come from Adam. In fact, if there was any difference in us, it would simply be the one greater in the sight of God is the one with more piety. He's the most documented figure in history. His walk, his talk, his statements, his thoughts, how he loved and fought, what he was and was not, everything that he taught is there for you to read. He's the man who had the world at his feet and would go days without food to eat. He loved the poor and the meek. God was all that he would seek. Enrich your heart and find out about the best man that you don't know. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. The legend, Umar Sulaiman. Jazakallah khair, man. Pleasure. Jazak Are you man. from London? I'm from London, yeah. South awesome. London, actually. MashaAllah. South straight London. Out, straight out of South London. <laughs> That's how we say it. Is it? Yeah. I just, I know uh, Southampton. Is that nearby you? Nah, that's a bit too far. South. It's too far? Yeah, that's on the coast. But South London. We're still in London, alhamdulillah, but the south part of it. And What uh, are you guys famous for? <laughs> Honestly, um, trouble. Allahu Akbar. <laughs> Sounds about South right. London. South London is where all the trouble is at, man. South of everywhere is like trouble. Yeah. Once you go to the South Side, South Side of Chicago, South Side of Jamaica. So we've got postcodes. You know, postcodes are like area yeah, codes. Yeah. We've got postcodes. So when I was doing that Boys Up uh, podcast, I had uh, straight out of SW16, which is my uh, my postcode representing. Allah, and, uh, Allah. <laughs> we'll represent, man. Alhamdulillah. Ustad, Amar. Pleasure to meet you, man. Thank you very much. We ask everyone to continue supporting you in the work that you do, inshallah. Yeah, the venom in the serum, inshallah, coming somewhere. Exactly. Soon. It's, it's not be you haven't taught it yet, have you? It's no, I have. Okay. I've taught it in London. I've taught it in Bradford. Did you have a translator when you were speaking in Bradford? No. <laughs> do I need a translator? I'm fine with Bradford. No, you're right for them. <laughs> <coughs> no, I've act I gotten used to all of the dialects. The only place that I still was rough was uh, Glasgow. Glasgow is interesting because all my Sudanese, if you're a Sudani from the UK, you'll get this. The, the Glasgow accent is actually the Sudanese Arabic accent. What? It's literally the same thing. Oh. So they roll their R's 
Yeah. They'll say like car, right? Car, yeah. Whatever they... That's the way that we pronounce the ra in Arabic. Uh-huh. So we make our ra muraqqaq. So we won't say umar. We'll yeah. say umar. Which is just how a Glasgowian will say <laughs> yeah. it. Going to my car. And, and the way that they say... Uh, the, the way that they say yes is what? Yes. No, they say I. I. Oh, yeah. <laughs> which is exactly how the Sudanese say yes. We say I. Uh, Aye. Yeah. So some ma- connections also, there. Right? Yeah, yeah. The Sudanese are the Scots of Bonnie the Scotland. of the Arab world. Bonnie Scotland, Bonnie Sudanese. Ahlan wa sahlan. Jazakumullahir. Ayakum. All our viewers and listeners at home, Jazakumullahir again. Another podcast wrapped up. Please do like, share, comment. Let's hear your views. If you can spit a few bars yourself, you've written some sonnets, and uh, it'll be good to share them, inshallah. And from the Islam Twenty One C unscripted podcast team on behalf of all of us assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh